Hey, it's me, your host, Sophia. Anyone who really knows me is aware that I love a good intersection. I love interdisciplinary thinking. I love having conversations that widen my horizons. And this conversation did just that. This discussion was a journey where spirituality met activism and wisdom intertwined with action. And that was very poetic. Uh, you're welcome. That's right. Today, we're talking about the intersection of Zen Buddhism and eco-activism. Okay, now before you get excited, let me tell you a bit about today's guest. He is a beacon in the realms of Buddhist and comparative philosophy, a respected Zen teacher in the Sambu Zen tradition, and a luminary in the field of eco-activism and ecological healing. Yep, you guessed it. Today's guest is Professor David Loy. His extensive academic journey began with a BA from Carleton College, followed by an MA from University of Hawaii, and culminated in a PhD from the National University of Singapore. His spiritual path in Zen started in 1971, leading him to become a prominent teacher and a voice of wisdom in the Zen community. Author of impactful works like Money, Sex, War, Karma, A New Buddhist Path, and Ecodharma, Buddhist Teachings for the Ecological Crisis, Dr. Loy's contributions have been pivotal in bringing Buddhist perspectives to contemporary social and ecological issues. In addition to this, his role in founding the Rocky Mountain Ecodharma Retreat Center reflects his commitment to addressing the spiritual dimensions of our ecological crisis. In today's episode, we delve deep into the essence of Ecodharma, exploring the intersection of ecological healing, activism, and spiritual practice with Professor Loy. We'll unpack how Ecodharma addresses the root problems of our ecological injustices and the profound impact of integrating spiritual practice with ecological awareness. So, dear listeners, now is that moment when I invite you to settle down or get started on that walk, that drive, that next set of laundry, whatever works for you. Without further ado, let's dive in. I'm Sophia, your host, and this is a Sustainable Spirit Podcast, where we explore how spirituality and ancient wisdom can inspire us to build a more socially and environmentally sustainable world. Now, I invite you to awaken your curiosity and open your heart as you join me on this journey of growth and understanding. So thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to talk to you uh, because I don't I don't think we've yet had an expert of like anything Buddhist related yet. So this will be like a new a new kind of perspective, which is going to be really fun. Um, thank so, you for yeah. the invitation, Sophia. Yeah, um, <laughs> happy to join you. And uh, um, expert to Buddhism, well, that's a pretty high label, but uh, it's definitely <laughs> you know, what I'm most interested in. So I'll do what I can. Yeah. So I wanted to start out by asking you about the honorary degree you received, because I read that in in 2014, you received an honorary degree from your alma mater, uh, Carleton College, and then you returned it. Could you kind of elaborate on on what happened and how kind of your background in Buddhism influenced that decision? Yeah, so uh, I was given the honorary degree for my work on Buddhism, and I think especially socially engaged Buddhism. And mm -hmm. of course, it's a great honor from the college. Uh, it's not something that's uh, uh, done that often. So to be frank, it was uncomfortable to return it. I really didn't want to insult the college, which I love. Uh, but at the same time, it was really important to emphasize that, you know, by not, by continuing to invest in fossil fuel corporations, uh, I, I think this is a serious problem that institutions, especially educational and spiritual ones, really need to stop supporting that, that world, that industry. We've got to get off fossil fuels as quickly as we can. And uh, so that was my way of sort of emphasizing that to the college. Mm -hmm. How did, um, how did you, I guess, how did you like execute on, on that decision and kind of like overcome that discomfort? 
Yeah, so I had been given the degree uh, during a uh, graduation, a commencement exercise, uh, when I presented a short talk. And um, I had an opportunity to go back to the college uh, some years later. And that was an opportunity to meet with other people in the college, uh, students, some faculty and staff who were working for divestment. And that was when there was the opportunity to meet with them and to give a short talk and, and to make kind of an announcement. Uh, so, mm -hmm. you know, because uh, I, I don't know anything, if anything like that had happened before, but it seemed uh, mm -hmm. um, worth sort of, you know, using it as a kind of an organizing tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess, like, I wanted to ask that because I feel like um, it's kind of a really good example of all the other things that your work is is about, kind of like eco-dharma and eco-awakening and like taking this spiritual um, take and combining it with like actions that you can take in the world to make a difference, um, which I thought was really inspiring. So I guess to start out with, I wanted to talk about eco-dharma and then go mm -hmm. to eco-awakening and then eco okay. and then eco-activism. They're all connected. <laughs> <laughs> um, so first, what what is eco-dharma? Could you define mm. it? Yeah. So, you know, the word, the word dharma is the word that you find in Buddhism and also in sort of Hindu, mm -hmm. Indian traditions it it's it's the word for the spiritual teachings and so eco dharma would be applying the teachings in this case the teachings of buddhism to our ecological situation so it's a kind of new new emphasis within modern buddhism because of course um, you know we're faced with this pretty critical situation as you know and all hands on deck i mean what do our spiritual traditions have to offer that can help us understand and respond and so mm -hmm. that's the basic idea of eco dharma yeah what's what's the um connection you think between the teachings of buddhism and the this crisis like what is for someone who's maybe never kind of thought that there is a connection how would you explain it you know when you go back to the original teachings of buddhism and there's you know there's different forms and different asian cultures um, the emphasis there is really on delusion you know in judeo-christian muslim cultures right it's good versus evil god tells us what to do and we get in trouble when we don't do what he says right but for buddhism uh, and for a number of other Asian traditions, the focus is much more on delusion. And the most problematic delusion is the delusion of a separate self. Uh, and basically ego. what Buddhism is saying. Yeah, ego, but more than ego, the emphasis on separation. I'm in here, you're out there, the world is out there, and therefore my well-being. If we're separate, then you can say my well-being is separate from the well-being of you and everyone mm. else's. And the basic idea uh, is there's this fascinating parallel between that fundamental Buddhist teaching and our collective situation, because it's the same problem written large, I think, except it's not just us individually, it's our species, our culture, our now worldwide modern civilization that we feel separate from the earth. And as Buddhism mm -hmm. emphasizes, that uh, involves a lot of problems dissatisfaction it mm -hmm. creates problems so that's the fundamental parallel that i think uh is maybe the most important thing yeah 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 and that feels like relevant to i suppose even people who aren't buddhist um or don't really have a background in like that faith particularly um uh, how how could someone who is in that situation how could they apply um, this, these ideas that perhaps in like a Western culture, they seem very foreign, particularly for someone who's, you know, raised maybe from a Christian background or just in a society that was based on kind of these Christian ideas of good versus evil. 
Hmm. Well, yeah, the <clears throat> the first thing to say <clears throat> is there are there are different types of Buddhism. And for some Buddhists, you know, Buddhism is about sort of creating good karma so you'll be reborn in a comfortable situation and then ultimately enlightenment means you're not reborn at all. That's one kind of Buddhism, but the Buddhism that I was trained in, Zen Buddhism in particular, it's not about trying to transcend, you know, go to some other reality. It's to realize the true nature of this one. So that's the sense in which I think you don't have to be a Buddhist to, to, to appreciate what Buddhism is pointing at here. You can still see, you know, just from a, even from a secular standpoint, I think a lot of the uh, teachings are are very applicable. If if I were to pick out what I think is the single most important Buddhist teaching, it would be what's called the the Bodhisattva path in traditional Buddhism. Basically, what it means is you have a double practice. People continue to work on their own awakening or equanimity. Right? They 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 continue to meditate and work on that. But at the same time, they know that that's not sufficient, that it's important to sort of be engaged as well. So it's this combination of continuing one's own spiritual practice, but also, you know, realizing we've got to apply it to what's actually going on. Let me summarize it this way. Um, there's this wonderful quotation by someone called Nizargadatta who said, when I look inside and see that I am nothing, that's wisdom. When I look outside and see that I am everything, that's love. Between these two, my life turns, right? So we can say the individual practice, the meditation, that's to help us realize, to let go of ourselves, to realize the sense in which we're nothing. But mm -hmm. then realizing that we're nothing, the other way of saying that, well, in a way, we're all of this. And uh, the question becomes, how can I how should I live in a way that acknowledges all of this and along with others, you know, doing what I can to make this better for everyone? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that quote. <laughs> it's kind of like, um, just kind of, <laughs> yeah, like this losing like the sense of separation, I guess, from the world around you. Um, how does, so that's the, that's eco-dharma. How does that what, compare to, um, eco-awakening? What's the difference between them? So I, I should maybe emphasize what I just said isn't only eco-dharma, but there's this oh, eco-application, okay. right? Yeah. Right. And so eco-awakening, well, in Buddhism, uh, awakening, which is the original term for what people, you know, people often say enlightenment, but the original term is awakening. And likewise, eco-awakening would be to realize our non-duality with the earth, right? Mm -hmm. That we're not separate from the earth, that we are one of the ways in our species, our culture, our civilization, for that matter. This is how the earth is manifesting, you know? Mm -hmm. So the the importance of that awakening is when we realize that we're simply one of the forms of the earth, then we will be more inclined not to foul our nest, right? To uh, take care of the earth. Realization that, you know, we can't just exploit it, uh, mm -hmm. extract its resources and dump on it. We, we have to cherish, take care of it because it's not only our home. Mm -hmm. in, a, in another way, you could say it's our mother in, in that we don't really cut the umbilical cord, you know, think of the oxygen and the air and the food that, yeah comes into me and goes out. I mean, that non-duality, that non-separation, that mm -hmm. goes on forever. It's not something, yeah. and it's really essential that we realize it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that eco-awakening, is it like, is it just kind of like an awakening that maybe you're aware of it or an awakening in that your your life is like re-centered and your actions are re-centered? It's a good question because there's definitely something to realize here, but mm -hmm. also realizing it is one thing and actually integrating it into how we live is something else. 
so we can have yeah. the insight that we're not separate from the earth but you know if that doesn't make any difference day to day so what um, mm -hmm. so obviously yeah. somebody who has that insight if it's a genuine insight they're going to want to transform their own lifestyle to some degree right reduce our own carbon footprint uh, mm -hmm. uh, i'll probably spend more time in the natural world and think about ways to protect it mm -hmm. and what are the for for someone who's maybe like never not made any of those first steps yet what would be the first steps that they would need to take towards eco awakening hmm. yeah uh, well, two things. You remember a minute ago, I talked about the Bodhisattva path, this double practice. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's important for us to develop some kind of meditation, contemplation, uh, mindfulness practice, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's essential for everyone, but certainly including um, those who aspire to be uh, uh, bodhisattvas mm -hmm. or, or ecosattvas, right? Um, at the same time, um, Buddhism is often practiced, usually practiced in sort of buildings and in, in cities and so forth. And I think it's, it's important for us to get out in the natural world and, and to sort of open up, make more of a connection there, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, it, it, it's hard to love something it's hard to defend something and work for something if you don't have a relationship with it. So in our Ecodharma Center, the retreats that we do up here in the uh, Rocky Mountain Ecodharma Retreat Center, we're outside, weather permitting, pretty much all the time. Mm -hmm. And that helps sort of, it, it doesn't create the connection, it makes us more aware of the connection that's already there. Mm. And how does that, for someone who's living a, like a very modern life and who's, who's surrounded by technology all the time, I suppose that would be increasingly difficult um, as the separation is kind of like increased between people and the natural world, which I suppose like even calling it the natural world is creating a separation. Um, but yeah, I, I imagine that that's very difficult even in my own life like we're talking on um zoom so that's that's itself like yeah uh, and thank goodness for zoom, thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's right that's right yeah well you, you could say that along with the meditation you could a, a subset of that i think is what you might call a digital fast I mean, I think it's important for there to be times when we turn off our cell phones. And uh, in fact, more generally, I think it's good often to sort of get rid of the notifications that ping, you know, whenever yeah. we get a text or, or something, all these things that tend to draw us back into that. So mm -hmm. you know, one nice thing about the natural, like I'm living here close to the Rocky Mountain National Park and I don't know if it's still true, but there's no cell phone reception there. Uh, so, oh, you know, yeah, know. <laughs> let's immerse ourselves in the natural world, but, you know, mm -hmm. let's turn off our phones for a while and, uh, and, yeah. and see what happens. I think that would yeah. be uh, an important initial step. Yeah, because, yeah, and I suppose, like, the argument for someone who, like, does lead a very busy life is, that in a lot of ways they can't disconnect. Like a lot of people, maybe they have to be online and they have to be attentive to their emails because they have a job that requires that or they have to stay online because they need to stay in contact with a relative or um, like in my situation actually now, I had to get on a plane to travel back home to be with my family for the holidays and obviously Plane travel is not is like terrible for the environment, but the alternative is to then not see my family. So, so how would you how would you advise someone in that situation who is kind of stuck between this hmm. kind of like living in a modern world where there's kind of like an expectation that mm -hmm. you're detached. 
um, and that you're engaging in these things that are not good for the environment. Mm. But someone who still wants to, I guess, do good and be better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let me just clarify first that when I talk about a digital fast, I don't mean turning off our phones and computers all the time. Uh, I mean, our, our situations are all different. And yeah. in fact, as you say, there may be some people for whom they really have to keep the phone on all the time in case they're, you know, somebody is ill and they've really got to be updated, etc. But, you know, for, for most of us, that's not the case. And we can turn off our phones for an hour or two. Yeah. Or if we're going out in the natural world, uh, maybe, you know, for one of the weekend days, that, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, regarding the issue of flying, and because I think this is an important issue, it's a big, big issue for me too, you know, mm -hmm. as, as somebody who uh, teaches Buddhism and I'm invited, and it's been a big question, you know, should teachers be flying around here and there to give the teachings, given the carbon footprint that evolves? And, and in my own case, I've, I've had to come to a kind of accommodation in the sense that say if i'm invited to to give a talk or a workshop in europe i i would only go if i could combine it with a bunch of other things it's like yeah. i have enough contacts you know if i can do talks here and if i kind of pile them up then i feel that i'm i'm using those miles in a in a good way it's like mm -hmm. we I, I think we all have this responsibility to be aware of our carbon footprint and to reduce it but it's also really important not to be kind of purist or perfectionist in the sense that uh, what's what's that phrase you know don't don't make the best the enemy of the good you know mm. we we do what we can the other thing to remember you know um, and this is often not not realized but the ecological crisis is also a class crisis okay mm. it's not simply yeah. that the top one percent of the world's people own fifty percent of the wealth, and the bottom fifty percent of you know almost four billion people they only have about one percent. It's ridiculous, but mm -hmm. also that top percent is like two thirds of carbon emissions. That yeah. Top one. So it's like you have these billionaires flying around the world all the You're time, right huge, huge, and. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to feel guilty for flying for, you know, mm -hmm. it's like we, that's one of the considerations. It's yeah. like, yeah, we need to be aware, more aware of all the many ways, not just flying that impact the environment and to do what we can, but also we're going to have to make accommodations. Yeah. Yeah. I guess like similarly, there's people who, for example, for for diet dietary kind of um, like going vegan or even mm. for some people going vegetarian, mm. they feel like it's just not accessible to them to like eat avocado toast for breakfast every day. That's <laughs> and, funny. I had avocado toast for breakfast today, but <laughs> but I also eat sometimes meat and fish. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I'm yeah, sorry, but, I'm interrupting you there. No, it's okay. Yeah. But yeah, I mean. Like I've, I'm vegetarian, um, and I try to, I try to eat a, like a more plant-based diet. But I know that there's there's a lot of people who, they're like you know yeah it would be great if I could but I can't because I don't have the money, um, I don't have the resources, and um, I suppose like part of making progress and being like truly sustainable in terms of how we solve the environmental crisis is also making the solution accessible for the lowest common denominator of person socioeconomically and that a lot of there's a, a lot of blame that can be passed around from people who like can dedicate all day to just growing food and make doing all of these things and like living a very perfectionist kind of eco-friendly life but then there's other people who they just feel like they can't access that and there's like a lot of shame i guess so so that's that's mm. all part of it too yeah uh 
Well, first of all, I, I think the point about food, it's, it's the same as flying in the way that I think it's important for all of us to think about, you know, for various reasons, both in terms of ecological impact, but also moral reasons. Uh, killing animals mm-hmm. is not something most of us want to, to do or, um, yeah. but again, reducing. Uh, like, for example, as people get older, uh, inclu- including me, we're, our bodies are less efficient at digesting protein. And, and what I find is I can eat a vegetarian diet fine for a while, but my body really does seem to need some meat, some poultry or fish protein after a while. And, and that's okay. So, you know, yeah. it's, it's not about being perfectionist, but it's about <laughs> moving in that direction and, and, and doing the best that we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what does eco sangha mean? Well, Sangha is the Buddhist term for community. Like originally it referred to the community of uh, the bhikkhu, the, the monks, the ones who renounced the world, and the bhikkhuni also, the, there were nuns. There, were, there was another order for the nuns. And so the Sangha would simply be that community, but now we understand it more generally as like community of practitioners. So uh, if, if I'm a member of a particular Buddhist group, then we would call ourselves that, that that's a kind of a Sangha. And so mm-hmm. Eco Sangha would again, just apply that to uh, the, the question of community, uh, apply it to ecological concerns, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it could be a group of people who are in their practice trying to, I mean, it could, it could mean a lot of different things, but obviously what's built into, into it is attention and concerned about the ecological situation. So these would be a community of practitioners who are concerned and doing what they can to address the ecological crisis. Yeah. Yeah. So you have um, your like Ecodharma retreat center in Colorado. If I'm That's right. Up. How have you, I guess, like cultivated that community um, to address the ecological crisis from a Buddhist perspective? Like what is what does it look like to build a community based around those ideals and that shared sense of like needing to take action against something? The the Ecodharma Center is a little odd in the sense that we're we're very high up, like 8,400 feet. Um, <laughs> And basically, we don't have a resident community. It, it's not a community in the sense that you might think. It's not really an yeah. eco-sangha. Different groups come and rent the uh, the lodge and or the cabin for a certain period of time. So uh, there's actually much more community, much more of a community in Boulder. We're down at the base of the mountains here. And, uh, and um, w- what we do, too, it's like it's not about telling people what they should do because especially in buddhism i mean the buddha 2400 years ago iron age india right Mm -hmm. very different situation didn't face the kind of problems that we have so within the buddhist teachings it doesn't give you those specific instructions what you should do there's a lot of relevance in the teachings about how to do what we do and so forth but as far as what actually to focus on that's not in buddhism Mm -hmm. What, so what I do in, in my own talks uh, is I sort of emphasize a way that people can decide for themselves what mm. they should do. And I, I suggest three contemplations or meditations. Number one, what do I have to offer? Taking account of everything about my situation, age, health, money, mm. family, etc how much time I you know, take, taking all that into account, what do I have to offer? Secondly, what are the good possibilities for me given what I have to offer, right? Because there's, there's, when you look at the ecological crisis, which is so much bigger than just climate change or climate crisis, I mean, there are so many things that can be done that need to be done. And we, we really have to decide though to focus. We can't spread ourselves too thin. So yeah. what's the best way for me to use my energy, my abilities, my time, 
right? And it may be very different from what it would be for you. Probably yeah. it would be. And then thirdly, uh, having identified a number of possibilities, this is where I think the meditation becomes especially important by kind of, what do I really want to do? You know, get beyond ego. And, you know, it's, it's not just a rational decision. What, what tugs at my heart? What pulls me to uh, engage? So, and I, I think that's really, really powerful because if, it, if we really are sort of responding to where our heart wants to take us, you know, I, I think we're going to have a lot more energy for what we try to do. So those three principles are, are what I have been emphasizing to help people decide for themselves. And by the way, you can also do it in groups. Groups could yeah. have group discussions and decide as a group, as an eco-sangha, what they might like to focus on together. <clears throat> what are the um, what are the challenges in engaging in that kind of community-based contemplation? And how would you, I guess, overcome them? Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure there, the, the, the challenges, um, like, what would you do if there were disagreements in, uh, the, I in, see. in the group, for example? Yeah, yeah, well, for example, like, within the board of directors, yeah, we, uh, we, we sometimes have disagreements, but, you know, the really important thing is that we are also we are all buddhist practitioners we're all most of us are teachers and we're deeply rooted in the practice so this is very helpful in the sense that that gives us a perspective or an approach that keeps us appreciative of each other and avoids falling into you know the kinds of bad feeling that can so easily um, develop in situations like that so you know and and that has still been a struggle um uh, the, the way the ecodharma started, uh, the, the land suddenly became available and we kind of had to jump at it. And what was awkward is basically it was like four old white guys who were able to put up some money to sort of get the place started. But that's not an ideal way to start a center, right? Especially these days. So, you know, issues of indigenous people, people of color, BIPOC, these are all important issues because as we know, you know, ecological issues are not separate from racial ones or class mm -hmm. ones. And we, we know that it's really important to emphasize that intersectionality as well. Yeah. Yeah. How, because I, I guess also that that intersectionality, it goes back to what you were saying about, like, removing these separations between us and the and like nature and the wild um and that i guess also that separation applies when we're thinking about really big problems that a lot of a lot of times just because we've been trained to think that way we'll like okay this is climate change and this is social injustice and this is um like biodiversity loss or whatever else and it'll people will think of it as like a discrete issue when really it's multiple issues overlapping multiple yeah. fields that apply that can be applied to it and multiple kinds of like perspectives and cultural viewpoints that you kind of have to like take all into consideration and like linguistically I guess also we're not really equipped to even talk about things in a way that acknowledges that very well. Um, but yeah, I think that it's, it like goes back to that as well. <laughs> well, there is this new term that people, some people are using poly crisis, right? Poly meaning oh. many. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a crisis with many dimensions as you pointed out so well now. And uh, you know, for example, if, if, if I'm asked to give a talk on say, Buddhism and the climate crisis. I say I don't talk about the climate crisis, frankly, because that's just that's just the tip 
of the larger ecological crisis. And, you know, you can't separate the ecological crisis from the extreme inequities, uh, economic inequities. You can't separate it from issues of, of color as well. And, but, you know, once, once people realize that, it can be very intimidating and uh, kind of like people want to throw up their hands. Oh my God, it's just too big. I, you know, kind of give up. But I, I tend to see it the other way around that, as Noam Chomsky put it, this is, we are now living in the most dangerous time in human history when you look at all of those issues. And he added danger of nuclear war and decline of democracy and, and around the world, et cetera. And, and, and I think he's right, but what's interesting about it is, is that that really helps focus us in the sense like as i said before all hands on deck it's like wow we are living in a time that requires the best of all of us let's let's not get caught up in the religion of consumerism or uh, you know economic growth but let's realize this this should draw the best out of each of us and the best out of our possible cooperation with each other uh, and I, I think to, to follow up on that, sometimes people confuse um, what I would call grief with despair. Like some people can say, oh, my God, it's just too big. We can't, you know, that's a head trip about the future. But I think it is important for us to feel some grief yeah. because grief is um, indicates an awareness of what's going on. And, and also, uh, it's a way that we show our love. <clears throat> I remember, <clears throat> excuse me. I remember in downtown London, <clears throat> there's, there's a little monument to the victims of 9-11. <clears throat> and it simply says, grief is the price we pay for love. Grief is a yeah. sign of our love. So if we love the earth, if we love, if we love its inhabitants, its species, mm -hmm. its ecosystems, its biosphere, then there's going to be some grief. And mm -hmm. but the good thing about the grief is that it can cut through a lot of the, mm -hmm. the bullshit of our lives and really, yeah. I think, help yeah. us focus on what's really important. Yeah. 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 It's like when you break up from someone a lot of times the like the heartbreak you feel is not a sign that you should not have ever had the relationship or that you should regret the relationship but it's a sign that actually it was a really special relationship that was very valuable to you and very important or like when someone you care about passes away and you feel really heartbroken as well it's not a negative feeling it's just the other side of uh, like the love you feel and the memories that you've made and i'm sure the same thing applies with things that aren't people you know mm. when like for example um i i moved to england when i was 13 and away from i moved away from miami so i moved from miami to england there's definitely like a sense of, of grief that I think I'd feel when I'd go back to some place that I remembered and it was just like that little bit different or I'd go back to a beach that I remembered and it was maybe there was a warning that you couldn't go in the water because the pollution that's also a sense of grief that I, I guess is um, it definitely, it serves a purpose and it it's difficult to just like living in modernity and the, the challenges and distractions of our like modern lives that, that, that the grief uh, we feel towards other people or towards situations is incredibly uncomfortable to like make peace with and to acknowledge but it's definitely 
like necessary. How, how much worse? I mean, well, first of all, that was very well said. Um, <laughs> I, I was just thinking how, how, uh, how much worse it would be if we were totally indifferent, right? You know, and some mm -hmm. people, as a way to cut off because they can't, they don't want to feel their grief or their despair, they'll kind of cut off from that and just be kind of, dis you know, di dissociate, mm -hmm. you know, be indifferent to what's happening. And that's, that's, that's terrible. Um, mm -hmm. um, What's that quotation from Kafka? Um, you can live in such a way, this is one of his letters, you can live in such a way um, that you become indifferent to the sufferings of others, but that is the one suffering you might avoid. Mm -hmm. You know, that to, the indifference, the sense of separation is itself a kind of suffering that yeah. built built into that and and i think it's important to acknowledge and the other thing worth mentioning is that within spiritual traditions including you know many people within buddhism it seems to encourage that it's like it encourages us to sort of be indifferent to this world because we're aiming to go to heaven or nirvana and sometimes people understand that as another place or another reality. And that can encourage a kind of indifference to what's going on here. This is just like a training school, this earth, this world. And it's not so important. It's just a means to a much better end. And, and mm -hmm. that's something that you find in Buddhism as well. And uh, I, I think that's very problematical. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that leads me to... Uh, eco-activism what hmm. I think I have an idea of what eco-activism is but how would you how would you define it in this context well activism that promotes the healing of our the healing of the earth and the healing of our relationship with the earth yeah mm -hmm. that would be uh, a really short one I yeah mean, I, I can go and say a little bit more about what that involves I think mm -hmm. because uh, I mean, I already mentioned earlier, Buddhism doesn't really help us in terms of specifics, what to do. And I talked about these three questions. Uh, but it, it's pretty clear, I think, that a number of things are needed, right? We also talked about reducing our own carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. uh, that's important, but it's also easy to misunderstand in the sense that I think the fossil fuel companies want us to think that way, that it's an individual problem, mm -hmm. right? And that basically there's that dimension to it, but we also need to engage, you know, with fossil fuel corporations and their influence over the government. And so the problem is institutional as well. I mean, so much of the resistance, like we're seeing at COP28 now, right? Mm -hmm. So much of the resistance is associated with the fact that a lot of rich, powerful people are still profiting so much from, mm -hmm. you know, coal, oil, gas, and they don't want to change things. They want to keep mm -hmm. profiting in that way. So we have to include our eco-activism has to find ways to challenge that. And that's why Sangha communities are so important because individually, you know, I can do things to lower my footprint, my own carbon footprint. But if we're going to address some of these huge corporations and their political influence, we've got to find ways uh, to, to work together. And I think some of them, frankly, are going to be uh, dealing like, say, trying to get good people elected trying to bring pressure to bear on Congress and state legislatures and so forth. But I'm pretty convinced it also requires civil disobedience, um, you know, that, that mm -hmm. people have to uh, kind of jam, jam, jam the system and um, stop some of the worst of the excesses. Um, for example, something that's on my mind recently, because Extinction Rebellion is talking about it, private jets. You know, it's billionaires, the private jets, huge carbon footprint. Should people be have should people have car private jets? What's what's going on here? Uh, think of 
how incredibly polluting they are. So maybe we need people to go to the airports and stop the private jets from taking off or, or something like that. Uh, I, I think those kinds of actions, nonviolent ones, but I think, frankly, some of that is, is necessary as well as political action. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have a question that is purely like something that I just want to ask for myself and not, I don't even know if it's relevant to anyone else. Uh, but so I'm obviously, I'm someone who's young in my career. Like I'm going to go to college soon. Uh, and I, I, and, and obviously we've um, discussed like these ideas that there's these problems are intersectional and everything. Um, and I kind of, when I think about going to college and I think about getting like a major in something very particular, mm. I feel like how, how is, how is it, how can someone who is in my situation, who wants to, through my career, somehow make a difference to these kinds mm. of problems, how I guess, how would you like advise someone in that situation? What principles are good guiding principles to think through how to pick a major, what problems to pursue, how to um, focus your time and how to, and, and I also like what we were saying, how to um, approach these things without feeling like incredibly pessimistic. <laughs> Hmm. Well, great, great question. Um, I, th I think one of the important things is not to focus too soon. You know, one of the nice things about the American system, as opposed to the British university system, right, is you can take a variety of courses. And, and I think it would be really important to do that, uh, you know, your first two years, and find out what you really loved, what you really love. And, uh, Take the course not only because of the name of the course, but also find out who are the really good teachers, mm -hmm. the ones that really, really speak to you. And, mm -hmm. you know, m make sure that's a big factor in your decision as well, because yeah. so often it, the teacher is what makes the course valuable or mm -hmm. not, just how, how, how good the teacher is. And I think after two years of classes trying quite a bit, then I think you'll be in a much better situation to make that decision. You know, to be frank, I think you have to give yourself time. Yeah. You know, I know there's anxiety about doing what we can and all that, but I think it's the whole point and the real strength of the American college system is the, the first couple of years to kind of broad, get a broad vision you know, of from many different perspectives. And, and uh, then on the basis of that, I think you'll be much in a much better situation to decide where to focus. Mm -hmm. um, so then the, the final like section that I wanted to talk about was ecological healing. Mm. Um, what does this mean in the context of Buddhist teachings and how how can people as individuals engage in that? Yeah, it, it's interesting if you you know if you go back to what the Buddha said and the rules that the monks and the nuns were following. It's interesting they weren't supposed to pluck a green leaf from a bush or a tree. In 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 fact. Um, or, or cut down living trees or bushes at all. So there was mm -hmm. a real respect for the environment in, in that way. Um, mm -hmm. It's difficult to be more specific today because it, first of all, as I said earlier, Buddhism has a very limited way it can help their eco-dharma, but, but also, uh, for me, so much of it comes back to those three meditations that I that I mentioned earlier, and and the fact that we do need to form groups and uh, work find ways to work. And you know, this is really important in another way too. I think uh, 
especially in the US, this incredibly individualistic culture, right? We're all starved for community, I think. Yeah. And if we can find a really good community of people and, and what, what bonds people together. I, I remember when, when I was living in Cincinnati, we started a group called Buddhist Peace Fellowship, a local socially engaged. And what really helped people bond was doing things together. A lot of us went to Washington for a march. This was the time of the Iraq War. And, uh, you know, we we actually did something together and that really helped people gel. So I think without being specific of what people should do, I think it's important to find things people can do together. And um, that will lead to other possibilities. I don't know if I really answered your question there or not. I think that's um, I think that's a good tip and I think it was the right amount of specificity because I guess that's not like immediately where my mind would go at least I I'm a pretty introverted person so I spend a lot of time like trying to get away from big crowds of people um but I think lately because as you know I'm taking this year off from school and I'm not, I don't have the school community anymore. I've definitely noticed that it's something I took for granted having this sense of community and having mm. people who maybe you're not like super close with, but people who you still see every day and people who are around you a lot. And that being kind of, having this shared experience with other people is actually incredibly important if you want to make progress. For example, in school, if you are progressing towards a degree or a diploma or, or some other certification, having other people there obviously makes difference. And the same applies with any achievement, I think. So, and then it, it's obviously increasingly difficult to find that community in person nowadays so hmm. I, I, although there's also a danger that sort of online community is you know like how many do you have five thousand friends on facebook kind of thing it's like online community can be real community but a lot of times it feels a pretty superficial substitute doesn't it yeah the hmm. um, yeah. well but again and i i don't want to it's like i i lead a meditation every wednesday morning online and uh, mm -hmm. did it this morning and uh same mm -hmm. we've been doing it for like three and a half years now and it's wonderful so that i mean there are genuine communities that can form but uh when i think about something like facebook i i don't think of that in quite mm -hmm. in, in in quite the same way mm -hmm. i i just wanted to reference your 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 uh, uh being introverted yeah because i am too and i think most of the people who become connected with Buddhist meditation, obviously they're very comfortable being by themselves. <laughs> uh, yeah. and, and yet what's interesting, it's like, uh, that's not, it, it, it's not like something that's fixed. Like in the process of becoming a Buddhist teacher, I've just over the years had to become a lot more comfortable being in groups, speaking in groups, being singled out, in one way or another and so you know that's that's something we can develop and in yeah. some ways it's, it's important to develop our ability to you know relate deeply to other people mm -hmm. yeah it, i think yeah. pe people like you and me it takes a bit more effort than for some but mm -hmm. it's still important. yeah i mean i find it's one of those things where um like it's not my natural inclination to go out and and it and it, I I think that the definition of introverted is like that it doesn't give you energy to be socializing it like drains you of energy and stuff. Um, but I do still find that when mm. I do force myself to go and socialize and be in in a group in a community, it definitely does nourish me. And it's it's still once I'm in that situation, it doesn't feel like there's so much friction. So the difficulty is just finding <laughs> a good community. So, so, and you know, uh, no community is better than a bad community that uh, just like in relationships, 
romantic relationships. You know, frankly, what often happens is people get stuck in relationships, even really bad ones, because they're afraid to be alone. And usually mm -hmm. it doesn't work out very well. Yeah. 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 Um, so are you, is there, is there anything that we haven't covered that you would still um, like to go over? Well, I wanted to make a plug for the Ecodharma Center. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we started it, I don't know, six, seven years ago. It's this beautiful piece of land, about yeah. a half hour or so above Boulder. Yeah. And uh, the retreats we do there, I mean, the, the Ecodharma retreat, it's very interesting. We've, we've sort of evolved a way of focusing on the natural world, meditating outside. Mm -hmm. Also, and, and this is something that I think should be emphasized, uh, cultivating gratitude practice. You know, mm -hmm. so many of us have the idea of gratitude. It's something you feel or you don't feel. But actually, no, it's a practice. It's something we can cultivate. And as I think it was uh, Brother Steindl Ross said, we're not, um, how did he put it? We're not grateful because we're happy. We are happy because we are grateful, you know, really emphasizing the importance of cultivating gratitude and, and cultivating gratitude to the natural world. So yeah. that's part of our retreat also sharing our feelings you know our our grief our anger our fear our confusion mm -hmm. about what's happening i think so often things people kind of bottle them up you, you know repress them and mm -hmm. actually be in a situation where you're living 24 7 with people then you can really open up and people find that really really powerful yeah mm -hmm. yeah. yeah i saw um, the pictures online and I looked at the website and it looked, it looked really peaceful. <laughs> well, it's pretty nice, especially in the summer. We give these big meadows full of wildflowers and we have a little river and mm -hmm. mountain hikes and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Think about it. <laughs> um, are you ready for the quick fire questions? Yes, I think so. Okay. And today is very exciting because um, you are the first person who will be receiving a question from a previous guest, which I'm very <laughs> excited about. <laughs> okay. um, yes. So um, the first question is, what are two facts about yourself that are both true but seem contradictory? You know, I had to think about this one a while. <laughs> Fortunately, you gave me it in advance, right? But on the one hand, I'm a pretty intellectual guy, right? I've written a lot of books. I like to read and da 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 da. Philosophy majors, da 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 da. And yet, I'm also quite sentimental. That well, you know, I I uh, tear up at the ends of lots of movies and and things like that. So it's that combination that. And in reality, I don't think that they really disagree with each other. But yeah. Probably most people aren't aware of that sentimental side of me. Yeah. Mm. Um, what is one misconception about your field or area of study that you would like to debunk? Yeah, I actually touched on this earlier. So often when we think about religion or spirituality, it's about we're trying to qualify for some better place, right? Heaven or go to nirvana, as some people understand it. And the idea of transcendence that this world isn't good enough and it's just a training ground as we were saying and the idea is to go somewhere so we're better i think there's a misunderstanding really really important misunderstanding that yes we need to transcend our usual way of experiencing the world that's the point of meditation it's not about going somewhere else it's realizing that the way we usually understand the world it's because of the way we think we're socialized into it when we grow up we learn to see the world the way everyone else does but that's just one way to see the world there's other ways and the the spiritual path is about sort of deconstructing and reconstructing so that we understand how our mind is is creating and recreating the world so coming back to transcendence right mm -hmm. 
I'm not interested in some other reality. I want to realize the true nature of this reality, including my own true nature, and then to integrate that understanding into how I actually relate to other people and, and to the earth. Mm-hmm. Sorry, long answer to your question. Um, what's the worst advice you've been given? Well, again, I was thinking about in terms of Buddhism, and, and there are some Buddhist teachers who say, uh, you know, Buddhism isn't about engaging. It's about your own individual awakening and just kind of mm-hmm. be indifferent, ignore that social dimension and just focus on yourself. And I can understand why they say that. I can understand that at the beginning, you know, you've really got to get some sense of how your mind works. But ultimately, I think that's terrible advice that mm-hmm. you know, we all need to be engaged with what's happening socially, political, economically, ecologically. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely essential. Yeah. Yeah. What's the most underrated spiritual, spiritual teaching you've come across? Interesting. Yeah, I, I think I've referred to it already, gratitude. People do not realize that gratitude isn't just a feeling. It's like love. Love isn't just a feeling. It's a relationship. Gratitude is a practice. Mm-hmm. We've got to cultivate. We've got to make it a habit. You know, habit. Like some people, last thing at night, they'll write down five things that happened today that they're grateful for. This can be huge. You know, as we mm-hmm. cultivate gratitude, we. We learn to see the world differently. We relate to people differently. And uh, mm-hmm. I think that's the most undervalued spiritual spiritual practice I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Claire Booth Luce once told President Kennedy, a great man is one sentence. What's your sentence? No man is a sentence. <laughs> that's very meta. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay, now for the most exciting question from a previous guest. Um, What would you rather create stemming from your research and why? A new book, a theater play, a movie, a television series, or a podcast? And don't feel pressure because you're on a podcast. Uh, Wow. I mean, if I had... You know, if I had the abilities, if I had the resources, mm-hmm. I mean, the idea of a movie would be absolutely wonderful. Um, however, you know, I'm an old antique um, guy in the sense that pre-internet, I mean, I'm I'm well aware, you know, how important things like podcasts and mm-hmm. are, um, but my my abilities are more along the lines of books. So I've written books and I'm trying to finish one last book. I think it'll be the last book. So uh, just, you know, taking into account what I have to offer and what I have the ability to do, let's say books. If I had infinite resources, I would uh, probably work with other people to make films. And there are filmmakers who are, you know, making documentaries on ecodharma. So I'm a little bit involved with those, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think so many people learn so much more than uh, from films than reading philosophy books, right? Do you have any, off the top of your head, do you have any um, particular films that you think have been really impactful for you personally? Oh, wow, there are so many. Uh, but one in particular, which is underrated, uh, there's an old black and white 1950s Japanese film called Ikiru. Ikiru mm-hmm. in Japanese literally means to to live. Mm-hmm. And it's this most extraordinary film about a man, a bureaucrat who realizes he's got advanced cancer, he's going to die soon, and how he changes. He changes his mm-hmm. life, how he tries to sort of live his last days, and he tries a number of different things. And it's just so wonderful um what he ends up doing so mm-hmm. that's my that's my all-time favorite film and i can never think about it without tearing up a little bit so mm-hmm. i uh there was a recent remake uh 
set in England. It was okay, but the the original, despite its kind of old production values, it's it's the one that touches my heart most deeply. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. And I learned a lot and I really appreciate all of the insights that I gained. <laughs> well, thank you for the invitation, Sophia. By the way, do you know we have the same name? Right? Sophia, mean? as you know, means wisdom, right? Yeah. And I have a Dharma name. My teacher, when I became a teacher, he gave me a Dharma name, Tetsu Un, which literally, mm -hmm. Tetsu means wisdom. So wisdom cloud. Wow. I'm, a, I'm a wisdom cloud. Well, that's the Dharma name. So anyway, we have our relationship is even deeper than we realized. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of pressure on us to be really wise. <laughs> the world can use all the wisdom it can get. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. If if people would like to reach out to you, where can they find you? Yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah, I have the website with an email address. So the website is very simple, David Loy, one word, dot org. Mm -hmm. And there's and there's a lot of things. There's like book summaries, introductions, there's other podcasts, videos, papers, and uh, and an email to contact me. So if mm -hmm. they want to follow up, they might explore the website a little bit and uh, that mm -hmm. would be helpful. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that discussion. And if you're interested in reaching out to Dr. Loy and checking out more of his work, please do take a look at the show notes. There you will also find a link to the Green Also Green website and Instagram page. If you would like to stay updated on the Sustainable Spirit podcast and Green Also Green, you can make sure to follow on Instagram and subscribe to the email newsletter, which is released once a month and will not clutter your inbox, I promise. If you want to otherwise support this podcast, please leave a review and share it with a friend, a stranger, an acquaintance, or an enemy. It's still a young podcast in a world of much more professional editing. So every single one of you out there listening, downloading, sharing, and spreading the word are making a difference and putting a smile on my face. So thank you. I'm grateful to you. And because I know you're such a high quality listener, could I ask you a favor? Send this episode to two people, just two. Let them know that you're glad they're in their, your life and you hope they're doing well. That's all. It will take less than 10 seconds and make their day that much better. That said, I can't wait to see you next episode. Until then, keep asking big questions with a big heart.